0: Today's victory does not ensure tomorrow's victory, does it? We see that from Joshua 7. We have to walk each day carefully. We have to realize that we are all, every single one of us, prone to Satan's temptations. We're prone to the sinful pull of our own hearts. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. As we come to Joshua 7, who would have thought that the miraculous events of chapter 6 would be followed by what we read in chapter 7? Now, on, on, in, from one standpoint, you could say, well, given the history of Israel that we read in the Bible, the chances are very high. In fact, in chapter 6 and, and verse 18, a passage that we will, we will keep going back to, God, Joshua tells the people at the command of God, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to Destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. There is a very clear warning. See, sin and unfaithfulness to God rears its ugly head all through Scripture, doesn't it? Despite the goodness of God's character, despite the miraculous nature of His deeds, God's people still go their own way. All people go their own way. And as we come to chapter 7, the prayer of our hearts must be, Lord, would you help us not to be like what we read here, either as an individual or as a church, lest we reap the fruits of sin and death. So today in our passage, we want to heed the warnings of allowing sin uh, to fester in the camp, so to speak, of our lives, of our church. We want to lean into Christ together to find refuge from the wrath of God against sin. So, this morning we're going to be looking at these warnings and encouragements by observing throughout chapter 7. We're only going to take the first half or so of chapter 7 this morning, but in chapter 7, we're going to look at seven observations. that we have to take note of in our Christian lives and that we have to be warned about in our Christian lives. And these seven observations are to lead us to run into the arms of Jesus. You see, a conquering faith is a faith in Christ. And the kind of faith that God calls us to in our Christian lives is a faith amidst our battle with sin. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I pray as we look at this passage, Lord, that our eyes would be geared to You. Father, we thank You that Your Son has defeated sin and death. And Lord, ultimate victory is assured on that final day when death is cast into the lake of fire forevermore. But Lord, we're still in the remnants of that fight. And I pray, God, as we each have to battle the daily struggle against sin, God, that we would heed the Example and the warnings of those who have come before us and that we would glimpse your greatness and your holiness. And Lord, that we would leave here with a greater appreciation for Jesus, for what he has accomplished on our behalf and for us. And Lord, that we would walk wise and not as fools. And Lord, we just commit this morning to You. We thank You for the time of worship through singing that we are able to be a part of. And now as we worship through our look at Your Word, through the proclaimed Word, that You would continue to minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Seven observations that we have to take with us regarding what we read in chapter 7. Now, for those of you who are 20 years of age and below, I I want to just give you a heads up that when we read about AI, we're reading about a city, not technology. So, So this is a city, we're not talking about anything that computers can do. So, now that we have that cleared up, we're going to jump in. I want us to read verse 1. Here there's a a big transition from from chapter 6 and the victory that we read. It says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, Son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The first observation we have to make comes from the very first verse in Joshua 7. And that is the observation that God requires faithfulness. God requires obedience. And at the very beginning of chapter 7, we see an act of unfaithfulness that has occurred. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. A few observations we have to make regarding this act of unfaithfulness is that this was first and foremost a corporate act or an act involving all of the people. It doesn't begin by saying an Achan broke faith. No, it says the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. You see, the people were viewed as one. In chapter 6, again, go in verse 18. But you, that's in the plural, you as a group, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when, you have, uh, when, uh, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. This is talking about Israel as a people. You see, God's covenant partner in the Old Testament was Israel as a people. When we think of of, of the New Testament, we think of the church, we think of verses like 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6 where Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And Paul's warning Church, if you overlook sin, that sin goes throughout the whole dough piece of dough. It's like Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 when, when He says to the churches as a whole, I have this against you. And He goes on to explain, it's not necessarily that every person was involved, but God saw them As a group. We're going to unpack that thought as we keep going. This was a corporate act of unfaithfulness. And this was also an individual act. Because then verse 1 gets more specific, and how did the people of Israel break faith? Well, Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, it took some of the devoted things. So one individual did this. And the text is highlighting his lineage to show the importance of this one individual's act that is a part of the larger whole. This was a corporate act or a group act. This was an individual act. And this was also a very treacherous act. In the ESV, it says, broke faith. You may be looking at another translation that describes it slightly different. But what this is, it's a highly serious, as one individual says, treacherous breach of trust between Yahweh and Israel. In other words, Israel betrayed God by taking what was His. This same word is used in Numbers 5, verses 12 and verse 27, to speak of a wife being unfaithful to her husband, acts treacherously against her husband in the context of adultery. So they took, if you remember that Hebrew word, they took of the harem, of the the devoted things. So the people of Israel, through this one act of Achan, they took what was God's, what was not theirs to have, and by that stealing, that theft, they acted treacherously against their covenant partner, against their God. This was serious. This wasn't just stealing a candy bar at the local Walmart where you have the the self-checkout people that are watching you and sometimes you feel like they're watching you a little too closely. You see, God requires faithfulness. We also see from verse 1 that now that this act of unfaithfulness had occurred, this is a guilty people. The result at the end of verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. God's anger was aroused. God is wrathful of sin. In fact, in in the, the Hebrew, it literally, His nose or His face burned against the people of Israel you ever seen somebody get really, really mad and like their nostrils flare out and they kind of maybe breathe heavy through their nose or their face is red? That's the picture that you get here. This is not a God that's angry haphazardly at something. This is a God that is angry at sin, a holy God. You see, again, this people broke covenant with God. They were unfaithful. So, first of all, God requires faithfulness. Secondly, God must be with us. There is no other alternative in our lives besides God being with us and God being for us. That's what makes Romans 8 so special in the christian life if god is for us who can be against us god must be with us now that this this covenant is broken between god and israel there's a rift there what's going to happen Well, verse 2, we see Joshua completely unaware of what has happened. Everybody, except for Achan and his family, has no clue what just happened. Joshua continues to plan. Verse 2 says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Didn't we just read something very similar in Joshua 2? That two men went to spy out Jericho. We also read in... um, We read in Numbers 13... That God instructs Moses, uh, before the people of Israel were in Canaan, send 12 spies out to go into the land of Canaan. This has kind of become protocol for Israel. Joshua's plans, first of all, are directed to Ai. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. As one individual says, he says, the selection of Ai, a town in the central mountains just east of better known Bethel, makes good military sense. A victory there will drive an Israelite wedge into the very heart of the land and give Israel access to the main roads in all directions. You remember you see a map there uh, if you can see that you see um, you don't have to pay attention to all the other writing I just want you to get an idea of where things are located you see Gilgal and then you see Jericho um, and and the river the Jordan River so Jericho provided access to the rest of Canaan and you can see where then going to AI which was about 12 to 14 miles or so from Jericho would make complete sense to then gain greater access and roadways into the rest of Canaan. So this made great military sense. And Joshua is not wrong for looking at Ai. We'll see that in chapter 8. Pastor Dennis will be preaching on chapter 8. So Joshua plans in accordance with his eye on Ai, no pun intended there, didn't even mean it, so he then spent, sends out the spies, and they go out and they spy out Ai. So we see verse 2, Joshua's plans, and then in verse 3, we read about the spies' report. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. You remember um, the picture of, of Jericho that I showed last week? and AI is significantly smaller. So the spies look, they, they bring back their report, and they say, you know what, the people look very conquerable. And the spies bring back report that they had good right to be confident. They said, in their minds, God is on their side, and they saw what just happened at Jericho. So there is a bit of an assumption going on here that the same thing is going to happen And the people of Israel and Joshua were not wrong to assume that God would be with them. That they would have victory over Ai because God had promised to give the land, but they were clueless about what had happened. So while the text doesn't focus on this, they probably should have spent some more time consulting the Lord's direction. But they did not, and you see what happens in verses 4 to 5. The army is defeated. Verse 4 So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Wow. This is unexpected. This would be, as we're going to read in a little bit, Joshua's fear. This is going to be all over the Canaanite nightly news. The army's defeated. This small town that should have been very conquerable, they're running from and 36 men get killed. How how do verses 4 and 5 describe the army's defeat? Well, first of all, it says they fled. 3,000 men went and then they fled before the men of Ai. What's even more emphatic is when you contrast the confident marching of chapter 6 with now the fleeing of chapter 7. These guys are running for their lives. Well, in reality, when Israel was still in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 28 It gives a set of blessings for obedience to God's covenant law and a set of curses for disobedience to God's covenant law. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 7, talking about when God's people obeyed, it says, "...the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way, And flee before you seven ways. That's what happens when God's people were faithful to their covenant. When the nation of Israel was faithful, they come one way and they flee seven. Now, growing up in Florida, um, there's a lot of cockroaches in Florida. And uh, I remember as a little boy, we rented a house at one point of, of uh, my growing up and it was infested with cockroaches and the owner did not want to do anything about it. And we as kids would be afraid to get up in the middle of the night because once you turned on that kitchen light, those cockroaches, they were everywhere and they just fled in all directions. That's the picture you get here. I don't think that that Moses, as he wrote this, was thinking about cockroaches, but that's what I think about. That it's like helter-skelter running away. You have a strong, mighty army that's marching to God's people, and because God is with them, they flee in all directions in utter chaos. God says, this is what I will do for you as you are faithful to me. But then later in Deuteronomy 28, if the people would be disobedient and break God's covenant, he says, the Lord will cause you you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And that is exactly what happens in Joshua 7. In fact, not only did they flee, but verse 5 says 36 men were killed. This is really an act of mercy as 36 seems to be a limited number compared to what could have been the case. And again, this is contrary to what God promises Old Testament Israel if they are faithful to Him. In Psalm 91, Moses very well may have penned this psalm, And he writes, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. But yet here, God's people are falling. And what did this bring about? It brought about great fear. At the end of verse 5, It says, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. In other words, their legs were so wobbly, they were so shaky that they had no more strength and stamina than water that just puddles to the ground. It's funny that we read about this, Except it was concerning the city of Jericho in chapter 2. The testimony of Rahab in verse 11 as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. But now it's God's people that are melting in fear. see, folks, God requires faithfulness to His covenant. And that faithfulness, that covenant ob- those covenant obligations were broken. And God's active, powerful presence was no longer at work for His people. And folks, we're going to get to this. I'll give you just a sneak peek. Number one... We should be so thankful for the covenant faithfulness of Jesus on our behalf so that we can be in a secure covenant with God. That we know promises like Romans 8, if God is for us. How do we know God is for us? Because of what Jesus has done and secured for us that we could not. But folks, even with the security of, of Jesus in our lives, we must walk carefully. Because Satan is roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You see, sin can still gain strongholds in our lives. We can sometimes bank our hat on past victories and successes and say, you know what? It's not that big a deal I'm just going to keep going and keep doing the things that I've done and expect everything to be okay. What we see here is that sin does have consequences. How many times do we as men, as fathers, do we let sin fester and seep into our family? We let wrong priorities take precedent. And we see them, we know about them, but we overlook them. And we expect the same spiritual results while we just let things slide. That happens in our individual lives, that happens in our families, and that happens in our churches. God must be with us. And we know through Christ, I will never leave you or forsake you. But at the same time, have we lost the sweetness of God's presence that we experience as we're fellowshipping with Him, as we're confessing sin to Him, as we are seeking to live for Him? So what does Joshua do in the midst of this? I mean, man, you you remember how the people murmured against Moses, and and Moses is at points where he's like, "God, what do I do?" Well, now uh, Joshua is at this point where what does he do? I mean, he's literally in the land of Canaan. He's—they've just been defeated. And they're an open target now. Well, lesson number three, observation number three from this text is this text reminds us we must run to God for refuge. We must. I mean, the question that plagued Joshua and the leaders must have been now what? What do we do? I mean, it doesn't look like these guys running back to camp are are so excited that they're bringing us good news. Their looks on their faces are, they're terrified. We must run to God for refuge. What does that look like? Well, we have a great example in verses 6 to 9. In verse 6, we see that Joshua and the leaders came to the Lord in humility. You know, if we're going to run to God for refuge, we must come to Him in humility. Verse 6 says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. What does it look like to come to the Lord in humility? Well, we see from this passage that it looks like coming to the Lord in grief. Joshua and the elders, they came grieving. They tore their clothes and put dust on their heads. We as individuals, we love to be tough. We love to be strong. We want to get out of sadness and grief in any way possible. But you see, God so many times has to break us. And that brings pain and grief. But that very pain and grief is an avenue to our healing. They came grieving. But not only did they come grieving, they came empty. They had nowhere else to go. What are they going to do? Formulate a new battle plan? The text says they fell on their face. He fell on His face before the ark of the Lord. It's interesting that this is the first mention of the ark of the Lord of the Lord since chapter 6, where it was so prevalent in chapter 6, it was mentioned about, I think, 10 times. At least in verses 6-15, 10 times. And and it's absent, except for here in in chapter 7. You see, the people of Israel were running in their own strength, strength without the Lord's presence, which the ark was a symbol of. And what is God doing? He is drawing the people back to Himself. They fell on their face before the ark of the Lord. You know, it's so easy to come to the Lord... And to say, okay, Lord, you know, I'm grieving. I see the heaviness of this situation. But yet we come to the Lord still filled up with our own you shoulds. And this is how it should look. And this is what you need to do. And yes, this, but not this. And that's not brokenness. That's not finding your refuge in God. Finding your refuge in God is coming empty and saying, God, I'm coming and I am falling on my face, so to speak, before you. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, verses 1 to 11 with the blesseds. You know what else coming to the Lord in humility looks like? To seek refuge? We see the example that Joshua and the leaders, they come patiently. It says that they were there. They fell on their, they tore their clothes, fell to the earth uh, on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. This was no quick fix. Sometimes I don't know a lot about fixing things and um, sometimes I'll go to YouTube and uh, look at how to fix something, but man, I'm like, click on the video and I'm I'm really nervous because I'm like, man, if this video is more than two minutes long, I know I'm going to get lost. (laughs) Hoping for a quick fix. That's how we are in our lives, right? If this trial would just be done if this child would just learn to listen to me, if my spouse would just understand me and do the things that I would want them to do, everything would be okay. But here is a lane on their faces in grief with ash on their heads and their clothes torn until the evening, saying, God, we have nowhere else to go but here. You have to speak. You have to lead. You know, that seems to be the most desperate place we could be and the most undesirable place we want to be. But we see here from chapter 7, that's exactly where God wants us. You see, God's ways are not our ways. And God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And that's easy to say and recite. But man, when God does that in our life, how uncomfortable we are. But this was not some kink. This was not taking God off guard. No, God wanted Joshua and the people to be right where they were. Coming to him so that he could help. The last thing we see in just here in verse 6 with humility is they came in one accord. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go back to chapter 2, where I talked about the, the Fords and all that. And here we have Accords. Um, but they did come in one accord. Joshua wasn't the only one that came. It says, he and the elders of Israel. We see here, even in the Old Testament, the importance of a plurality of leadership, don't we? Talked at our members meeting about wanting to talk more uh, uh, corporately about um, how the Bible describes leadership with elders, a plurality of elders. And, and we even see this in the Old Testament. That Joshua, man, imagine if just Joshua went before the Lord, and it's kind of all on, on his shoulders. No, there's, a, there's a, uh, elders, there's a group of leaders that are coming on behalf of the people. And saying, God, you need to give us direction. You need to tell us what to do because we have no options. So, if we are going to run to God for refuge, we must first of all be like Joshua and the elders of Israel and come in humility. Secondly, how do we find our refuge in God? Like Joshua, we need to pour out our hearts to God. Joshua's not sitting there or laying there on his face with his clothes torn and dust on his head, just simply saying, Woe is me. I wish things were better. Why do I always get the raw deal? No, he poured out his heart to God. This pouring out of his heart to God, it was a prayer of confusion. Have you ever been there? Can you identify, though in a limited way, with how Joshua feels? That's the, the power of Scripture, and reading the Psalms and passages like this. You may be in a totally different situation, but be able to identify exactly with the feelings of the text. Verse 7, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. This was a prayer of confusion. I don't understand what you're doing, Lord. what is going on here? He questioned God. You see, sometimes we think that we need to be more spiritual than the, the very authors of Scripture and think, well, something must be wrong if I don't just come to the Lord and say, Lord, Thy will be done. I have no clue what's going on, but we know that You're in control. And all of those truthful things, but we're saying them with empty words. It's like the little child that, that, has, that has the uh, popsicle behind his back and, and the daddy or mommy, they know full well what he's up to, but he has the guilty face. Tommy, did you take that popsicle? Mm-mm. Are you obeying? mm hmm That's how we try to act with God, isn't it? Nowhere in the Bible do we see God's people not being completely authentic and honest before Him in a biblical, scriptural prayer or lament. Let me give you a few examples where we have very similar phrasing and and, and feelings from what Joshua here. Alas, O Lord God, why have You done this? In Exodus chapter 5, God has just gotten done telling Moses, you know, go to, the, go to Pharaoh. I'm going to deliver them. Um, um, I'm going to display wonders among the people. Jo- um, Moses doesn't want to go, but he goes. And then all of a sudden, Pharaoh makes them make bricks without straw and the people are upset. And Moses goes to the Lord and he says, O oh Lord... Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? In Numbers 11, the people are out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness and they're all grumbling because they're hungry. And they're saying, why did you bring us out of here? Moses cries to the Lord there and he says, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Now, were all of Moses' perceptions here correct? No. He was having a me moment. How many of you have me moments? (laughs) And God doesn't even rebuke Moses because of that. Moses is coming in authenticity before God. I mean, literally, Moses in Numbers 11 is saying, God, why did you give me this job? Have I I really done anything that bad that I have lost your favor that you've called me to this? You see, what what we see here, it is not a stubborn rebuke to God. It is an honest pouring out of one's heart to God saying, God, I don't know what you're doing, and this is how I'm feeling. And there is a difference. And here Joshua is confused because he says, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us, the the hands of the Canaanites? That word give is used. Remember we talked about how repeatedly that that word give is used as a promise of God, but now it seems like the opposite's going to happen. They're going to be given. See, this is a prayer of confusion and it is an absolute prayer of desperation. And we're going to end after verse 9, so don't worry. He says... um, Why have you brought us out? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the land of the Jordan. This was a prayer of desperation. They felt absolutely desperate. Again, they had nowhere to go. They're basically saying, Joshua is saying, God, we would have been content If we dwelled right before we crossed the Jordan where the two and a half tribes are going to dwell, we would have been content there. God, what are you doing? Again, this is different than the Israelites grumbling. You remember in Exodus 16 and verse 3, the Israelites were hungry and, and, and in bitterness and rage and defiance of God, they, are saying, they said, Moses, why did you leave, lead us out here? We had meat pots and bread in Egypt. And it was like things were so good in Egypt, we had all that we could eat. What did you do bringing us here? Do you see the difference between that bitterness and rebellious rage And what Joshua is praying here. He is likewise is pouring out his heart to God, but he's doing it in humility and in honesty, saying, God, we would have been content to stay over there, but you led us here. So what's going on? There's a difference. They are fearful here. It says, Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs, verse 8, before their enemies? What's he going to say? It says, verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. See, this is a prayer of desperation that what's the natural result going to be of this? That They're an exposed army and uh, camping out and the other nations are going to come and destroy them. So one individual says, one imagines them fearfully huddled in their tent camp at Gilgal with no fortified cities to run to. Joshua himself fears the camp's vulnerability to easy encirclement and annihilation by the enemy. Without God, that's their only hope. That's their only expectation. But yet uh, Joshua knows in in his heart of hearts that they are still God's people. Notice he doesn't say they will cut off our name from the earth. He uh, uh, He says they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will that do for your great name. You see, this was also a prayer of reverence. Joshua knows that as the people of Israel go, so goes God's reputation. And Joshua is appealing to God in the character of his faithfulness in reverence, because he knows what God has promised. God says in Exodus 34, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you shall see, among among, among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. See, Joshua knows that God's people bear God's name. And Joshua appeals to God on the basis that, God, we are not just any people. We are your people. And here we are before you seeking your guidance. Today, this may be right where you are. And maybe you've been fighting it. Maybe you've been dreading it. Maybe you've been trying to deny it. But it's the exact point where God wants you. To see the utter futility and hopelessness of to keep going the way you're going and hoping in yourself and to say, God, you've got to take control of my life. You've got to do something. Lord, lead and I will follow. If you're in that position, find hope. Because if you are a believer, you are not just fill in your name, but you are one of God's children. And God is a God of covenant faithfulness. We may not be, but He is. You see, a faith that conquers is a faith in Christ. And that faith in Christ must be anchored in the realities of who He is. That we run and find our refuge in Him amongst all the storms of life. Amongst all the things that we'll see next week that we could turn to, Jesus must be the center.